0: Hello, and welcome to Slash, a publishing podcast. I'm your host, Eric Harden, and on this week's episode, we're going in a different direction. So if you've listened to the first five episodes, you know that they have been kind of an introductory course to the publishing industry as a whole. The first episode was an introduction to the podcast. Episode two was an intro to the industry as a whole at a general level. Episode three introduced you to the many different departments in the publishing industry. Episode four had a guest appearance from my wonderful colleague, Fuyenzi Adegbonire, who chatted with me about publishing jargon. And episode five walked you through the production process that goes into creating a one-color book. And so I hope that if you listen to all five of those episodes, you have at least a base knowledge of how the publishing industry works that I would like to build upon in all episodes going forward. And so every episode from now on will include an interview with a professional in the industry. And we're going to be diving into different topics related to publishing in order to get a deeper understanding of the different roles, the different responsibilities, all the different types of work that go into publishing books and selling them as a career. So the first chunk of interviews will be focused on going a little bit deeper into each department. So we already had an episode about the different publishing departments, but I want to have an expert in that department talking about working in that department because I don't want, you know... I don't want your main understanding of each department to be me just reading a description of the department. I want you to hear a full or at least a more full scope of all of the work that each department does. And so the next 10 to 12, I don't know exactly off the top of my head how many departments there are, but I'm basically going to have an interview with at least one representative from each department in the next several weeks. And then following that, we will do deeper dives into each different department. So, for instance, today's episode is about, as you saw from the title, editorial. So we'll talk about generally working in editorial. And then in the future, we'll do a deeper dive with a multiple episode long focus on editorial as a department. So we'll talk about working in adult versus working in children's, working on different book formats, working in different genres, all of those types of things. But for now, we're going to get started with the series talking about the departments themselves and working in them from a professional's experience. And so I'm very excited to introduce you to this week's interview, this week's guest. Her name is Makisha Telfer, and I am, <laughs> I have to say, a huge fan of hers. I don't know her super well personally. We are colleagues and coworkers at Macmillan, and I have been a fan of hers kind of from afar Ever since I started at the company, because, and I'll mention this in the interview, but every book that she brings or that she has brought to acquisitions in the two years that I've worked at Macmillan is the type of book that I just am clamoring to read. Like I've never, you know, every once in a while an editor will bring a book that isn't for me and that's fine. Not every book is for me and also we're publishing books for kids. So like 90% of the books we publish aren't for me. But for some reason, every book I see Makisha bring to acquisitions is exactly the type of book that I either wanted as a kid or that I want now. So I have just had such a respect for Mikisha since I've known she existed. And so I'm so excited that she took the time out of her very busy schedule to come talk to me and to you about working in editorial because she's such a wonderful example of what it means to be an editor. And so, yeah, let me give you a little bit more about her other than me just gushing. Makisha is an editor at Roaring Book Press, which is an imprint of Macmillan Children's Publishing Group. And in addition to just being a really cool person, in my opinion, she's also a really phenomenal editor. Some of her books include Girl Giant and the Monkey King by Van Wong, May the Best Man Win by Z.R. Eller. And most importantly, We Are Water Protectors by Carol Lindstrom, illustrated by Makila Goad, which was the winner of the 2021 Caldecott Medal and also is a New York Times number one bestseller. And Makisha will mention this in the episode as well, but yeah, it's just been such a huge book for such a wonderful editor. And I'm so thrilled that this success is coming to Makisha because I think she so totally deserves it. But enough of me singing Makisha's praises. I'll let her impress you herself. So please enjoy this interview with Makisha Telfer. Thank you so much, Makisha, for taking the time to chat with me today about the editorial department.
1: Thank you for having me. I've never done a podcast before.
0: Yeah, it's really fun. And it's such an honor. Thank you so much. So the very first question I'm going to ask all of my guests is, how did you get to this point in your career? Basically, give us a full rundown of your resume as it is now.
1: Ooh, should I start with, like, college?
0: When I answer this in my head, I start when I first decided I wanted to work in publishing, which was sixth grade. So you start wherever feels right.
1: I love that. I feel like when I was younger, there was a period of time when I did want to work in publishing. But I didn't really know what it meant. And like maybe Google wasn't as good back then. So like I couldn't really research it. It was just like, I know that books exist. The fairies make them somewhere in the wild. And then they end up on bookshelves and it's magical. But I kind of lost that bug for a little while. Like I was always interested in reading and writing. But the idea of being in publishing didn't come back to me until literally my senior year of college. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with that English degree that I got. I I went to the University of Georgia and I was reading a webcomic, Nimona, at the time. And the creator of that webcomic announced that it was going to be published as a book, a real life thing. And that just triggered this memory for me that like, oh, this is a thing I used to be interested in. And it confirmed that books are made by people. And so from there, I decided that after I graduated, I would attend the NYU summer publishing program. And it started right after I finished school and I did that. It was six weeks and it was an okay program. I don't usually recommend it, not because it wasn't an excellent experience. And most of my friends that I have in the city today, I met in that program. So it is an excellent sort of networking opportunity, but it's also expensive. And I will be the first to say that I don't have a lot of money despite the industry I've decided to come into. So there's a little bit of that. Anyway, I did the NYU program. And then a couple of months after that, after cold emailing some people, I was able to get an interview at Simon & Schuster. And that was where I got my first job. I worked with the Books for Young Readers team. Um, I was there for three years. I worked with, I'm an editor now, agent named Kristen Osby and Zerine Joffrey, who I adore. And then I was there for about three years, but I moved on to Glasstown Entertainment I don't know if your listeners know about packagers, but they are a packager where they come up with ideas in-house for both books and film and TV, any kind of really, really interesting media looking for those quote-unquote holes in the market, the kind of spaces that they can fill Um They're searching to sort of fill those holes in the market. And I was with them very briefly, but it was a really, really interesting experience learning, you know, how near agents work because they did all of the editorial work that I was very familiar with. But then they're also, you know, connecting directly with talent, connecting directly with editors. It was a a really interesting part of the industry. And from there, I came to Macmillan um, and I've been at Rowing Book Press for a little over four years now. And it's
0: been great. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. I do want to say also, I went to the Denver Publishing Institute and I completely agree. Great networking opportunity, but so much money. The money. Yeah. So that's part of the reason I created this podcast. I mean, obviously I can't replicate the networking that you get from an institute, but I'm hoping that at least the education is helpful because I would, I kind of recommend it for the networking, but only for people that can afford it, which is also like the people that can afford it, you know.
1: Do you need, yeah. That's
0: all, yikes all around really. Yeah. <laughs> OK, yes. so next question: What are some of your favorite projects or titles that you've worked on so far in your career, whether that's at MacMillan or any of your previous jobs?:
1: This is always such a hard question for an editor. It's like, "You want me to choose one of my babies?" I would say, I've really enjoyed the opportunity. So when I was at SNS, I mostly worked on and assisted, really, while I was there, on YA, and that's what I was really comfortable with. I like to call it my bread and butter because I just really dive into those books whenever I I find something that I really like. But I have been really pleased to learn the world of picture books as a Roaring Brook editor. And so one project that I'm really, really proud of is We Are Water Protectors, written by Carol Lindstrom, illustrated by Michaela Goad, which last year won the Caldecott, which was really exciting for someone who was literally the first picture book that I had acquired when I came to Macmillan. And to see that it see it go so far and like hit so many people, I attended a conference maybe a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, TLA. I attended TLA this year, and I was talking to a librarian very randomly, and I mentioned that I had worked on this book, and she cried. And I was like, "Wow!" Like, so not only does this book mean a lot to me, I. Just enjoy seeing firsthand how much it means to other people. So that's one that I really love. I've also had an opportunity to work on a lot of queer YA, which has made me really happy. Some of my favorite authors that I got to work with, Kelly Quinlan, Jazz Hammonds, Dan Clay. It's fun to finally sort of see myself reflected in the books that I work on. And that's sort of the the power trip that comes from being an editor. You get to be like, this is what I want to exist on shelves. Sort of a twist on what it means to be a gatekeeper, I
0: think. Yeah, definitely. Two things. Number one, when you started talking about YA, I was like, is she not going to talk about We Are Water Protectors? Because I was like, it has to be We Are Water Protectors, right? I mean, Caldecott medal winning and like, isn't it number one New York Times bestseller? How could that not be, you know? You
1: know, <laughs> it's hard It's because it felt like not that I, it was a surprise, I think, because I remember sort of, I remember Michaela's art coming in not even the art coming in. She took screenshots or photos of her watercolors as she was working on the book. And then she sent them to me and I was like, this is the most beautiful thing that I had ever seen. But I was still very much a baby picture book editor and I wasn't able to predict that it was going to be something so magnificent. I was just having a grand time by myself working on it. So it still kind of surprises me. And I have to remember, this is hot shit.
0: Yeah, no, it's amazing. Yeah. And all the awards and accolades aside, which, you know, are amazing, it's also just such a gorgeous book and like so important to talk about. It's such an important story to tell. I had a second thing. What was the second thing? Oh, I wanted to say that part of the reason I wanted you on this podcast is because truly every time at Acquisitions, you bring a book. I told you this already, but every book you have brought to Acquisitions in the two years that I've worked at Macmillan, I'm like, how do I read this book now? It's not like, oh, this is a fun book that I'll read one day. It's like, I need to read this book yesterday. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because there there's a lot of queer books and I am queer. So it's like, hello. But every time I'm like, Makisha just always hits every time.
1: Listen, I'm trying. <laughs> I think, you know, as a, an editor, you get to choose the kind of voice and visions that you have. I remember having these conversations with my manager when I first started at Macmillan and it's like, I have big dreams and not a lot of direction. And she really emphasized for me that I could do whatever I wanted. Um, I could be as brave and radical as I wanted, which meant bringing books that other people would be like, what are you, what, I don't know what this is supposed to be. And then just really pushing to make it work.
0: Yeah, definitely. There's, um, if you didn't acquire this book, we can cut this out, but it was the drag queen, like, did you, did you get that one?
1: I did get that one. Yeah,
0: what is it called?
1: <laughs> Called "Becoming a Queen" by Dan Clay. Yes,
0: I I don't usually before acquisitions read the things because I just don't have time. So I just listen in and see what's happening. And I you presented that and I was like, I need this book. This book is <laughs> so cool. I think I like I never post in the chat either on the the video call. Yeah. But I posted in the chat and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever. I just, uh, such great choices.
1: (laughs) You know, that one, that one is a lot of fun to work on. And it's like slowly but surely becoming a book now. We have a cover and, you know, we're going into, I think maybe the second class, first class, none of that matters. It's like a beautiful book. And that sort of just reminds me about the kinds of things that I like to work on and the kinds of people that I like to work with, because I have literally cried with Dan on the phone about that book.
0: Yeah, it's so great. Okay, moving to some of the more editorial-focused questions. How would you describe the work that your department does?
1: I would describe it as expansive, focused, creative, and also strangely technical. We do a lot. We carry a lot. We are editing the book. We are writing the copy. We are helping to guide the covers. We are communicating with every department a lot of the time making their lives harder. We are pitching and positioning books, which I think is honestly one of my favorite parts, but it is hard. It's a, it's a bit of a puzzle to determine what about this book is going to hit with its intended audience. What about this book is going to grab the sort of secondary audience, the ones that you're, you're hoping that maybe will come to a book. We do a lot of that. There is being a sort of resource for your creators not just in terms of your editorial expertise as they are, you know, writing and determining is this plot point, does it make sense? Is this the right move? Does this spread look the way that it should? Is it communicating what it should? You're also there to help them become the artists that they have always wanted to be. You know, most of the writers that I work with, and I think maybe writers everywhere, they just have a dream of what it means to be a published author. And I think when you're inside the publishing machine, it's different from what the author's experience is. And so a lot of the time you feel a little bit of pressure to protect that dream. And so a lot of our job goes into that as well. Um, working with agents, meeting with agents, and making sure that the best projects are coming to our house, to our imprint. What else? I feel like I've probably missed something massive. Negotiating contracts and things, we do a lot. The job is very big. As I said, it's expansive, probably more than any single person should be doing, but that's the job.
0: Yeah, I've talked about because I, when I first started thinking about publishing, I thought I wanted to be an editor. And then I found out all the things that an editor does. And I was like, I love that for other people, but I, it's not for me. <laughs> and I, when I think about it, I do think that. The difference of being an editor versus working in a different department is like, for instance, I'm a managing editor. My job is to keep the books on schedule, blah, blah, blah. But that's my job. It is a very specific job. And I, there's a lot of stuff involved in that. Sure. But like that's also a part of your job. Like your job is to edit the books and acquire the books, but also to keep them on schedule and to be a salesperson for them and also to be a liaison between departments. And it's just you're kind of doing everyone else's job, at least to a certain degree for every book you're doing. So it's just yeah. I don't know how you do it.
1: <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. And I, you know, I don't want to like discourage any young people. Well, who want to come into this industry because we want you here. We desperately need you here. But it's not an easy job. And I think there are a lot of us here who are working to find ways to make it easier, to make it more manageable. But it's a lot. So you have to prepare yourself for that, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. This just made me think of a question. You do not have to answer this because it's kind of off the wall, but I've heard people discussing, especially in editorial, the idea of instead of having, because currently editorial assistants come on and like a lot of their job is admin work. And so they don't really get to start editing anything until potentially years into their job. So I've heard people float around the idea and it's, you know, this is not concrete in any way, so who knows if it would ever happen. But like, I've heard the idea of hiring specific admin people for an imprint who do that admin work and then people, new editors coming in can just start editing from the jump. Um, What would you think about, like, do you think that would help some of it? Do you think that would be a good change?
1: Oh my goodness. I love the sound of it. I genuinely love the sound of it. I think one of the most unfair things about being a young, you know, a junior editor is that there is an amount of time that you have to sort of give to the machine where you're just doing assistant work. And it's not always the fun assistant work. It's not always co-editing on a book and offering your notes and insights. It's really just writing copy and doing paperwork and things like that. And I think that's really hard. Particularly, it's hard to maintain morale when that is all you get to do. And so I do believe in letting junior editors acquire. I do believe in the sort of co-acquisition process where an assistant and their manager are working on a book together. I believe very strongly in those things. But without any other support staff, none of that work gets done if an assistant isn't doing it, which really, really sucks. So I love the idea of having an admin head who doesn't have big dreams of being in publishing. I think we are all, you know, because we work here, we, we live here, this is, you know, the air we breathe, the water we drink, that every person wants to be like really deep and involved in the books. And like some people really, really do just want to do their job, do it well, help and support in whatever way that they can, and then, you know, move on and are happy with the proximity that they have to a book. But I think a lot of people assume that you have to have a deeper connection to the book to do CRMs and request ISBNs and things like that, which I don't necessarily think is true.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Like. There are so many people that have admin jobs and love their job because it's like, oh, I do this thing and then I go home and I don't have to think about it for the rest of the day. Meanwhile, I'm thinking about books I'm working on day and night Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I'm just too passionate about it. So there's nothing wrong with those people also working alongside us, you know?
1: Yeah. And then I also think it would go a long way to really diversifying the kind of people who work within this industry. I'm coming with a background knowledge that not to crap on English majors because I am an English major and I love every English major I encounter in the wild. But I feel like you're getting a wider breadth of experience, of lived experience when you're opening the doors to other kinds of people. And so I no one's asking me, but if they were to put it to a vote and I was allowed to contribute, I would definitely vote for that system.
0: Yeah, I don't know that that will ever happen knowing the way publishing works, probably never, but yeah, <laughs> I've heard it discussed on like Twitter and such. And I, I think it's a really great potential solution for especially editorials burnout. Burnout in editorial is just ridiculous.
1: <laughs> it's bad. And it's like, yes, congratulations. You get to acquire now, but unfortunately you don't have an assistant. So you're working on your books and your boss's books. And that's a lot. It's a, a heavy load to carry.
0: Yeah, too much. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And so kind of related to that, what are some of your favorite parts of your job as it is now? And what are some of your least favorite parts of your job?
1: This is probably the cliche, but like reading a really good book by a very talented writer. It's like a, it happened to me the other day and technically Jazz is someone that I have worked with already, but I read a proposal from an author that I work with for their next book that we already have under contract, but I read it in the morning and it really just took me through the rest of my very long day. I was just on cloud nine thinking about that book and like, I cannot wait to get my hands on it. So that's always a, a really great feeling when you connect with a story and you connect with the way that it's been executed. It's really, really special. So I love that feeling. I love working with creators of all kinds. I think people bring so much to the work that they do and they have such varied interests. And so when you have an opportunity to talk to someone about the things that they love, a lot of the time, it's not things that make it into the books that they are writing and illustrating, but it sort of like, I don't know, reaffirms your your belief in humanity. And it's like, you're a really cool person. And I'm really grateful that I have an opportunity to work with you. So that's one thing that I love my colleagues, you know, a job that is hard is significantly harder if you don't have people on your side that you can sort of commiserate with, get advice from. And I think at Macmillan, we have like a really, really fantastic open team who are really just interested in sharing information. Not every publisher has open meetings the way that we do. And so I know that I've learned so much more working here than I have anywhere else, just because we are just so free with knowledge here. So I love that. And then presenting. I think is maybe like weird. I'm mean, not weird. I maybe unexpected. I, you know, I'm anxious as much as the next person, but I really do like the opportunity to talk about the books that I love to people who are going to sort of pick that message out wider and spread the love. I enjoy talking to, you know, writers at conferences. It's a lot of fun to sort of get deep into craft with people. I really enjoy that. And then the least favorite part of the job, I have a whole list. I would say the emails. I have developed over the years a lot of email anxiety just because they are constant. People asking you for things, doing a lot of deadline triage and just, I'm so sorry. I need to beg, borrow, and steal 10 days from you so I can finish this thing over here before I can do the next thing. That's really hard because sometimes it feels like you're disappointing people. And so I think that part is is really hard. There's a lot of emotional labor, I think, in editorial work as well. There had been a kind of culture of editor as mom, therapist, sometimes punching bag for anyone who felt that the process wasn't going the way they wanted it to. And it's not like that widely anymore. You know, I think if you encounter that kind of situation, it definitely is a one-off. But I do think there is still a lot of emotional labor that goes into this job of trying to strike the right tone of, again, protecting that dream of being an author and you know, not ruining the, the experience for someone else. And just a uh, very hard, sometimes unmanageable workload comes with the territory.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's just the the answer across the industry. <laughs> we do too much work all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so next question is, what traits and or skills do you feel are necessary for a person looking for a job in editorial?
1: Yeah. I would say communication skills, obviously, that's like top tier, not just because you will be required to communicate your thoughts and your editorial notes to your creators, but you have to constantly communicate with agents, with authors, you know, not about their books with your fellow colleagues. So being a confident communicator is pretty high up there in terms of skills that you'll need. I would say also, you know, media literacy. So not just a joy of reading. I think that's very important. To be an editor, you have to be willing to think critically even about the things that really excite you and be able to say, you know, To be able to challenge the omniscient narrator that you are reading and say, "No, I live in the world and I know what you're saying isn't true, or I live in the world and I am aware that you're only telling half of the story. I think that's really, really important. And it's a skill that you develop over time, but I think you have to question the media that you come in contact with as a whole. So the books that you're reading for fun, the TV movies that you watch, things like that, and that will help you be more critical when you're editing to make sure that you're covering all of your bases and telling the, the best story possible. So there's that. Being organized is important. I feel like when I first started, I was super curious about how my fellow editors kept their files. I was like, OK, so if you were to open, you know, your computer, how do you organize your files? Do you have a separate folder for each draft of the book or do you just drop everything from that author or for that title in one folder? I think it may, it's maybe silly and it's a definitely a thing that I care about, but I think people who are coming into the industry for the first time should definitely care about that because it will make your life so much easier if you can create the systems that you need to make a big job feel manageable. So there's that. Being good with deadlines is a big one that not every editor is good at. And I will tell you right off the bat, this is not something I'm good at. But if you aren't going to be good at deadlines, you should be good at communicating that something is going to be late or something is going to be early off schedule, whatever it is. Just being able to confidently say that to someone without being afraid or feeling any kind of shame about something not going the way that it was supposed to is really important. What else? just like a genuine curiosity. Uh, I remember, you know, we have meetings with sort of like our edit meetings every week where you're talking to your colleagues about submissions that they receive, that they're excited about, that they hope to acquire. And in these rooms, it's a great opportunity to sort of talk about what's happening in the world, the things that you've seen. And it's really opened my eyes that the people I work with are very curious. They want to know about the world. They're really interested, again, obviously, in the narrative. So why is this happening? Who is behind X, Y, and Z? And coming with that kind of curiosity to this industry will really get you far because you'll uncover stories that nobody else was thinking about. And that's always fun.
0: Yeah, those are really great traits to have. Thank you next question is kind of the big question of the episode and we can really dive into it or we can keep it more surface level, whatever you feel more comfortable with. But I would really love every person in every department that I talk to, to kind of give the listeners an idea of all the work that they do on one specific title during that book's life cycle. And obviously, hopefully the book never dies because it's always in print. But you have, you know, the time that you're mostly working on the book when it's being created. And then I'm assuming editors keep working on that book maybe forever. But could you walk us through either a real title you've worked on that you want to use as a case study or just a made up title that you would potentially be publishing? Just like walk us through the entire process from the editorial or the editorial editor's perspective.
1: Okay, so we can go we can go from the very beginning. You know, editors have a manuscript wish list. I think it's a fairly new idea or at least the idea of calling it a manuscript wish list of what they want to see in the world and hopefully there is a magnificent agent out in the field who is like, "I know that you are really interested in dinosaur books." And so they send you the new Jurassic Park. So, step 1, receive the submission. <laughs> step 2, actually read it and like read it whenever you can, but eventually it gets read and you're really excited about it. So for Roaring Brook and pretty much MCPG as a whole, for all of our imprints, we have editorial meetings. So if I have a manuscript that I really, really like, I will send it out to my team. And the following week after I sent it and my team has had an opportunity to read it, we will gather and discuss. And this is really an opportunity for me to share my editorial vision for this book that I read and loved because it mixed dinosaurs and, I don't know, environmentalism or something weird. It mixed these two things that I really love and I think, you know, it's going to hit X audience, but I think we need to work on why. So I do that in that meeting and then I'm also getting feedback from my team. It's not necessarily, you know, being edited by committee, which I think a lot of authors are afraid of this idea of, oh, there's so many cooks in the kitchen who are going to affect the story that I had in my heart. But in reality, these are professionals who are aware of the market and so they are sharing comps, be it comp books or like, oh, this is just a movie that I saw. I think it would be great to bring that up in your pitch to sales things like that. We are all sort of working to both make this book the best thing that it could possibly be, and then making sure that it hits the audience that needs it the most, if you will. After that, I, if I get the green light from my team and everything is ready to move forward, I start drafting my acquisitions paperwork. Brief pause in the chance that the you know presentation to my edit meeting doesn't go over as well as I want it to. And they're like, there is promise here, but we think X, Y, and Z really needs to be fixed before we can share it with the wider team. I will go back to the author and agent and share the notes that we had in that meeting and ask if they would be willing to revise. Not every author is willing to revise and they call it revising on spec. So there's nothing under contract, but you know, I'm trying to build a relationship with you to make this look the best thing it can be. So we can take it to an acquisitions meeting. So that might happen. And you know, as an editor, you're always sort of preparing yourself for that eventuality and being willing to talk to an author and see if your visions align. But if everything goes well, you start in on your acquisitions paperwork, which involves doing a memo, a PL, a little bit time consuming, but really worthwhile because those materials will come in hand later. And then you take it to a big meeting. So every Wednesday we have an acquisitions meeting and you you sort of make your case to sales and marketing and publicity, why you think this book deserves to be out in the world, why, you know, the audience it is meant for needs this book, why it's going to make us money, because that's important. Books aren't just, you know, food for the spirit. We, we work in a business and we want the things that we publish to be successful. And that's important in these meetings. So you're doing that presentation and you're taking the feedback that comes from them. And, you know, adjusting accordingly if they want to sort of change something, if they think, you know, there's upside for a book. Always really exciting to get that note. Then, you know, you go forward with the information that you have. Very pleased if you get the green light. And then, oh my goodness, we're so early. (laughs) You get the green light and then you make an offer to the agent. From there, you'll do some negotiating, which is really scary. You know, I wasn't really trained on negotiating. But you're hoping that you're not sort of selling your, your publishing house out from under you while trying to, you know, make a fair deal for an author, maybe an author who has a solid career behind them or a debut author who is, you know, this is their first book offer and you, you want to make it good and you want to make it fair. So you do all of that. There's a little bit of back and forth so it can last, you know, for a while sometimes. But if the offer is accepted, you cheer, you hurrah, you celebrate. I've had exactly one author call me after accepting my offer. And it was really, really nice reversal of, okay, now I need to contact this person to let them know that I'm so, so pleased to work with them. And for an author, his name is Benson Shum. When his agent told me that he accepted, he called me and let me know as well. It was really, really nice. So that happens. And then you start setting the book up in the system. Oh, my God. we're Really? My new point here. You set the book up in the system. You're, you're making ISBN requests. You are doing the CRM. So like after you've negotiated, all of the details that you went over with the agent have to be approved by the house. So you're putting them in this document that will help our contracts team draft the final contract. But the way that we do this is we get all those negotiated terms, we put them in a contract request memo, and then we send it out into the ether for our executives to approve. And if they give you the green light, it goes straight into contracts. If there are issues, you might have to go back to that agent and say, oh, I am so sorry. I offered you something that I was not allowed to offer you. So don't make that mistake. Um, that happens there and if everything looks good it is now in the hands of the contract department and they will you know communicate with the agent directly to sort of get that contract fully executed signed up and get those initial payments out the door from there my work work actually starts and i have an opportunity to edit the book which is the most exciting part you know I read, I've read the manuscript when I sent it to edit meeting, but it's really like a sort of sit on your hands exercise. I try not to edit while I'm reading submissions because it's really devastating if you put a lot of like time and energy and thought and like, you know, genuine, like heartfelt thinking into a project that ultimately, you know, gets sold elsewhere or your team thinks that it just isn't the right fit for your imprint, your house, what have you. So I try really hard not to edit while I'm reading submissions, which means I try to come to the first round of editing with a kind of clean slate. I might have big picture ideas, but we're getting into the minute stuff in that first round. So I'm editing. We'll do maybe three rounds on average for most novels. And after each round of heavy editing, we'll get on the phone with a creator and say, do you hate me now because I gave you all of those notes? Hopefully they don't. I don't think I've ever had a situation where an author was upset with the notes that I gave, but you know, stranger things have happened. So we're doing all of that. And then sort of simultaneously, while I am editing the book through its various rounds, we are doing things like jacket briefs. So at least at Macmillan, and also in my experience at SNS, the cover concept originates with editorial. We are the ones who are guiding the, the shit from the very beginning. And then design comes in with all of their magnificent knowledge and like Photoshop skills and they really make magic. But we have to sort of, with our knowledge of the book that we've read, you know, at least two times by the time we're doing the the jacket briefs and communicating with the author about what their vision is. I always love an author who has a Pinterest board, has a mood board of some kind, who has fan casted their books because you get a real sense of A, the kind of book that they want. To be publishing, like the package of it all really comes together when you involve the author. And they just love to be involved. Like being able to see what their book is going to look like is a really important part of the process for an author, I believe. So, yeah.
0: I just want to jump in really quick. Sorry. I do want to say this is going to be a common theme, I think, as you're talking more about the job that you do, because like you said, the cover idea originates from editorial, partially because I think a lot of designers do read the books they work on, but a lot of them just can't read all of the books that they work on. So if they can't read the book, then they're not going to know how to create a cover for the book because they haven't read it. And this is a thing that is pretty true for a lot of the departments, I think. And we'll hear that as I'm sure you're talking, but most people in publishing maybe haven't read the books they've worked on. (laughs) And that's not because they don't love the book or because the book's not wonderful, but it's just the volume of books that, especially larger publishers like where we work, are publishing is just so high that you can't If you also want to have a life outside of your job, you cannot physically read all the books. So editorial does too much is what I'm trying to say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And and to be fair, it really and truly is like this big funnel. There are so many editors that we work with, but our, for the most part, we are all sharing, you know, managing editorial teams. We're all sharing the same designers. We're all sharing the same marketing and publicity and, and sales team. So we are kind of responsible for your heavy workload in a way. And I I think it's important to sort of acknowledge that it is impossible to read every book that you're getting from multiple editors. I think that's hard. Um, Oh, yes. So jacket briefs. So you're filling out these jacket briefs and then you get paired up with a designer and you get to do the exciting part of talking about artists, the vision for the overall project. And I know right now I'm just talking about the novel process. And like in my brain, there's the picture book version happening over there, but I'm going to stick with novels for now. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I'm going to have separate episodes later on talking about the difference between the different types of books. So don't worry, (laughs) it's not all on you to explain it all.
1: Thank you. Perfection. So they are, they sort of start working with you to get uh, a sense of the vision for the book. And you're also working with the author to make sure that they are on board. Because again, the last thing that you want is to have chosen an, an illustrator to have come up with the perfect composition that your entire team likes, but the author themselves is not happy with it. So like that, you want to be careful with that. And then from there, I guess, after you have edited this book into the best shape that it can be in, it goes into copy editing. And this is like when it, for me, I like to think of, you know, you were previously in the development phase where we're really working on the craft of the book. And it's really just an editor and the author kind of in the dark holding hands trying to make it work and then when you both feel comfortable with the products that you have you get to introduce more people into the conversation which i think is really exciting so it goes to copy editing and one of my favorite things is when a copy editor like leaves their notes in like their feelings about the book in the manuscript it doesn't always happen but when it does it's really really nice like our copy editor for that book, Becoming a Queen, just left so many sweet comments as she was working. And I was like, this is amazing. Just buoyed me through the rest of my day. So that happens. From there, after the book has been copy edited, it is sort of laid out in its official form. And as an editor, I get to sort of review sample pages. And this is also really fun because I get to see what designers are like doing and all the things that they're moving around as they are turning a Word document into a book they are laying out that text and making it look like the thing of your dreams and as an editor i get to chime in and say i personally really love running heads which is when the title and like the author's name or maybe the chapter title and the author's name are printed at the very top or very bottom of the book i personally really like it because i like to look over people's shoulders on the subway to see what they're reading and if there's no running heads i will never know so i always vote for running heads if i can so you, you're you involved in the sort of process of making a book, in the design of it, and then more brilliant minds than me come into the process and they are proofreading the book, catching all the mistakes that my eyes could not catch after reading it seven times um, and really doing the Lord's work. And from there, the book just sort of like continues until it's finished, then it's done and it's gone to the printer.
0: I do want to just step in. You're kind of running over this quickly, but in... The copy editing in the proofreading, there's so many different passes that you're reviewing every single time. So it's not like it goes to copy editing, then it goes to proofreading, and then the book's done. It's like, no, it goes to proofreading, and then it gets reviewed 12 times. I mean, 12 is maybe too much, but three or four times at least. And you're doing that review every single time to make sure that any changes get made are okay with the author, okay with the story overall. Like, we can't just make changes just because we want to make them. Like, it is a piece of art that someone else has their name on. So we have to confirm that they're okay with the changes. So, yeah, I just want to make sure people know that it's not like it just goes to proofreading and then voila, the book is done. Like there's so much back and forth with editorial, with man ed, with design, with production. There's there's a whole ecosystem of people working on each pass.
1: So, yeah, it is. It is a, a lot. And I do really like the you do make a great point that we can't. There is a limit to what an editor can do. And I think it's important for authors, for the world, for junior editors to know that it isn't really your place to demand an author make a change. It's not your place to make changes without consulting them because a lot of the time, every word is intentional. And you want to be careful that you want to take care to protect the author's voice and the integrity of the story that they were trying to tell. I think that's really important, but it also does contribute to this, okay. For the copy edits, I'm going to review after the copy editor have have reviewed it, send it to the author and then review it again after the author has worked on it. And you're doing that for each pass of the book as well. And there's like three or four passes per book.
0: Yeah. And also like, I mean, I'm one of the people that hires and manages copy editors. So hopefully every copy editor I hire is really great, but sometimes, you know, they're not as great. And so (laughs) I try to catch things like, let's say we've had issues and i I think any publisher has had issues with maybe the copy editor isn't as sensitive to identities in the book as they might want to be or should be. So sometimes you get things that are, oh, this is not, this is a microaggression in this, this copy edit. No. And so like I try to catch them, but I'm also a white person. So I might not notice all of them. So like that is also part of your job to make sure that your author's not getting like insulted or hurt or, you know, and that's just specifically to race or identity, but also like, you know, maybe you know that your author loves a certain grammar thing. And so why continue flagging a certain grammar thing? Because you know that they love that. So just delete all those comments because it's not going to change. You know, there's so much involved in all of this. It's not, I think, and I definitely felt this way, like it's easy to not think about how much work goes into every aspect of every book. Even books that like, because I work on books that maybe I don't care about as much. Like obviously you work on books for the most part that you love. I get assigned books. So some of them I'm obsessed with and some of them I'm like, "Eh, it's a book. (laughs) But even those books, I'm putting so much work into. Every single book gets touched by so many people in so many different ways. And I think it's just really good for people coming into the industry to know that because it's a lot of work.
1: (laughs) It's a lot of work. And also what you had said reminded me that also before a book goes into copy editing, depending on like the topic, the author's comfort with the story, it is also the responsibility of editorial to find an authenticity reader. So another party who is reading the book alongside you and doing the hard work of flagging things that aren't quite right, that aren't true to the experience of the characters, that aren't true to the experiences of people who are living in the world. So that's also on us to sort of like find the right reader who has the sort of qualifications that we need, not just in terms of experience and education about a topic, but someone, again, who we know can read critically. I think that's really important when you're finding, you know, a beta reader of any kind that they're not just excited about the book, but they're excited to sort of pull it apart to see how it works and help you put it back together in a better way. That makes sense. So that is also a part of the editorial process that I have forgotten about. So, you know, usually for me, I get to sort of move the manuscript itself, the sort of interior to uh, a different part of my brain once it enters production. Because now I have an entire team behind me, you know, making this book the best thing that it could possibly be. And they are keeping me on task, keeping me on schedule and also, you know, just contributing to the beauty of a book. So I'm going to put the manuscript bits to the side for now. And then a couple of months, you know, six months before publication is the time when an author gets to talk with their marketing and publicity contacts, at least at McMillan. That's how we do it. And it is up to me to sort of introduce those two parties to make sure that the conversations go smoothly, to make sure that the authors know that they can ask questions. You know, I think a lot of publishing is filled with jargon. I remember not knowing anything about all of the conferences that we attend, and to be quite frank, I still couldn't tell you what they stand for. Like NCTE, if someone put a gun to my head and asked me what that stood for, I could not tell you. But I know it's Isn't a conference. Is it like
0: North Carolina Teacher Expo or something like that? Guns, Maybe.
1: Yeah, I is it North
0: Carolina? Uh, I don't know. Right? <laughs> it's too confusing.
1: No, right, there just there's so many of them, and so me. I have been working in this industry for years and I've been hearing, you know, about NCTE for years. And it's like, I know what happens there and I can, via the context clues that I've picked up over the years, be like, yes, I understand what's happening. But for an author, they don't even know what they've missed. You just sort of like did a little bit of gibberish in the middle of a meeting and they're like, okay, that's something I don't know what it is and I am too afraid to ask. Which is something that I, as an editor, I'm always trying to be like, be very comfortable asking questions. And hopefully an author's agent is going to partner with you in that to make sure that they have all the information that they need. That they get to share the things that they're most excited about. The opportunities that they are most excited to participate in, if you will. So there's that. And that relationship continues from, you know, the moment that they're introduced, the marketing and publicity team is introduced to the author, to the moment that the book is published and launches to the great beyond where I'll, you know, hopefully... The books that you work on have a very long life. And that means that your author is going to schools and talking about their work and about their stories for years to come. And the publisher, even if, you know, God forbid, a book that I worked on, you know, backlists really well and and that author has an opportunity to continue talking about their work for years. Even if I wasn't here anymore, as a publishing house, we are going to take care of them. We are going to give them the resources that they need to step out into the world's best foot forward. Yeah, I'm certain that I forgot something, but I don't know.
0: I was just going to add that, I mean, for the really big books, I mean, there's still like people, there's a dedicated team, I think, at PRH that focuses on Dr. Seuss. So as long as the book is still out there selling, like the marketing and publicity relationship will always be there because we're always, it's always a product that we're trying to sell. And so we need marketing and publicity to get it sold, essentially. So that relationship starts before the book publishes, but it never ends as long as the book is still publishing.
1: Yeah. And like, we are also, you know, in the business of investing. So obviously this is a very creative industry, but our intention is never to sort of like chew an author up and spit them out and then we move on to the next book. That's not what we do. We want you to, to be a returning author. We want to be, you know, building careers as an editor. So again, giving someone everything that they need to continue writing books, but it's also sort of like escalating as a creator. You're getting better with every book. Your language is getting sharper. Your vision is getting sharper. And, and as an editor, it's your job to facilitate that. And I just realized something that I did forget was launch. Oh, my God. So if you rewind before you meet a, uh, your marketing and publicity team, you have every season we have a big launch meeting. And for editorial, that requires a lot of preparation. So much preparation. We are creating tip sheets, launch sheets, writing copy for this book. We are writing selling points. And, and again, this is in order to position the book for our sales team, our sales and, and uh, marketing publicity team, who are, again, going to pitch and position this book to booksellers, to librarians, to uh, their media contacts. And so you want to make sure that it, you're doing it, you know, you want to make sure that you're doing your best in this space. It's a, a really important meeting for us. So you're doing that. We're also, you know, when you're working on picture books, you're preparing materials for people to look at. Um, You want to have those visuals because, you know, picture books are a visual medium and it's hard to get people excited about something that they cannot see. So we're doing a lot of chasing. Every department is doing a lot of chasing around launch. That'll probably be a common theme (laughs) as well. But those big meetings are, are really important to editorial They take up a, a lot of time and, and be exhausting, but also kind of fun because, again, I enjoy presenting.
0: Yeah. And I also want to say going back to the topic of editorial, kind of having to tell the people working on the book what the book is about in order for them to do their jobs like this is that meeting pretty much like the whole meeting. The reason it's so stressful is because you want to tell them the thing they want to hear about your book so that they take it up as their book and they work for it so hard. I mean, they're going to work on every book, of course. Of course. But like, if you love a book, you're going to do more for that book than a book that you're just like, eh, it's a book that we can sell. And so you want to like really hook them in the story that you're trying to create with this book. Some people on the sales team, for instance, will read 50 pages of a book maybe, but the volume again of all of the books that we're publishing each season is just so high that it's just not possible for one person to have a life and also read all the books. And so having this introduction from editorial about what the book is gives them at least enough to do their job. And then hopefully they can also at least dip in and read 50 pages of the book so they can talk about like the voice and like the flow and like all of those granular things that you wouldn't know without reading it. But at least they have, oh, this is what the book is about. This is why we're, we're selling it. This is why you should buy it.
1: Right. And then it's also it gives them an opportunity to recognize if a project is right for their account. So even beyond like, oh, I think I understand what this project is and I like it. It's, oh, I think I can sell a significant number of copies to Barnes & Noble or to Amazon. I think those buyers will be really interested in this particular book. I think it would be a great fit for this book club, things like that. So the positioning here is really important, but I want to emphasize again, Because, as I said, being able to present and communicate is a big part of your job as an editor, you have a lot of opportunities to sort of sneak in a bit of a presentation about your book and to be constantly reinforcing the pitch and, you know, idea that you have in your mind for a book over the course of its life before it's even published. So, for example... The same people who are in our launch meeting are in the acquisitions meeting. So, you know, you can be thinking, I want to go in this with my best foot forward. So I am going to pitch it here, see how it goes, see how the room responds, and then come launch, adjust that pitch. So you're hitting the right notes to make people go, oh, I'm really excited about that. So you have numerous opportunities to do that and to look for those ins. And I would say it's also a great idea to just keep in contact with your colleagues and let them know about the things that you're most excited about and they'll they'll listen. And then from there, you know, after we've talked about all the meetings and opportunities that you have to talk about this book, when it publishes, it's really in the hands of the world. And you are definitely keeping your ear out for anything that you can do to support this book, any crises that you can help solve. But for the most part, Now the work goes to the author to, you know, go out into the world and communicate their excitement about this book to get it into the hands of young readers. And then, of course, in about a year, give or take, that book will come back to you when it's time to publish as a paperback. Not every, you know, house and imprint publishes their paperbacks, but we do. And it's just another opportunity to get the book in front of a new audience at a slightly lower price point.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. That's it's a long answer, um, yeah. but I think it's going to be so helpful for people, especially who are looking to get into editorial, who don't understand the full scope. And I mean, it's not even you did a great job answering, but like that's not the full scope. There's so much more.
1: <laughs> yeah. because like, OK, so that is the life of a book. But it's also important to remember that while you're doing all of that, you're still fielding emails for every project that you work on random requests for materials. You're working with subrights to to sort of share materials with them. You're just doing a lot all the time, but simultaneously you are involved with the life of that book.
0: Yeah, it's it's never ending. <laughs> and it's all happening simultaneously. I'm actually doing an, my, the next episode that I haven't recorded yet is going to be about like the production process for a book, how a book is made. And I have to give like 12 different caveats at the beginning, because I'm like, I'm talking about a one color book and like there's different processes for different books, blah, blah, blah. And one of the caveats I have to give is this is a linear, like I'm telling this in a linear way, but a lot of this work happens so simultaneously that you can't, you can't like do a step-by-step guide of how a book is published because marketing is doing a million things at the same time that sales is doing a million things and Man ed and editorial and all the different groups. So it's just, <laughs> the work is vast. <laughs>
1: exactly it's it is wild to me i was like yeah i was just giving that a whole spiel but it does not truly does not touch on all of the work that my colleagues are doing simultaneously on the back end behind my computer screen to really make things work
0: which is part of the reason this podcast exists because i want to shed light on all of that but it's so much <laughs> like it stresses me out sometimes how much work is done to make just one book okay so moving to the next question similar to this topic, what is one thing that you wish you knew about publishing or your role specifically before you started working in the industry?
1: I wish that I knew how vast the job was, that it isn't just reading. I do a lot of my reading after work hours, and I try not to do that. I'm trying very hard not to do that, but it's a big job, and I wish that I understood that the role of editor is actually more of a like, sort of product management role rather than just editing. So there's that. But then I also wish that I knew when I was first starting out how to protect my time, how to protect my energy and my self-esteem in an industry that is really, really hard, particularly like as a Black woman. Just like I remember for a period of time when I was at, maybe still today, oh my goodness, that there is no one who looks like me in editorial who is at a higher level than me. So, you know, that that's the sort of like idea that you feel more comfortable, like dreaming big when you can see people in those roles. And I really had that. So that's something, you know, that I think about often, despite the fact that like I love where I work. I love my colleagues, but it's a difficult industry to be in and you have to sort of protect your time and your energy whenever you can. But if that means setting really hard boundaries with the hours that you're working. It might mean setting really hard boundaries with the authors that you work with and making, you know, the choice not to give people your cell phone number, making the choice to not let people treat you poorly. And I think that comes with time, that comes with confidence, but it's important not to let people talk to you any old kind of way, which is something that I've learned working in publishing and I've sort of gotten a bit of more of a backbone as I've been here longer and I'm willing to take less shit from people, which is nice.
0: Yeah, it's vital. I think <laughs> absolutely required if you want to stay yeah. in this industry. And I've only been in it two years, so I, I have nothing to speak about compared to you. But <laughs> already I'm like, yeah, no, you really can't let anyone just talk to you any way they want to. You can't yeah. You want to stay in this industry.
1: Right. And if you're so- not to be like, oh, you can't be soft in working publishing. That's not what I mean. But if those boundaries sort of erode or are non-existent when you're first starting out, It's so much harder to build them up. And it feels uncomfortable, not just for you, but for authors, colleagues, anyone really that you had let in past those boundaries when you're trying to build them up again. So just sort of protect your time and your energy and go forward to knowing exactly that you are doing a job, even though it's fun and great and wonderful. It's a job.
0: Yeah, it's it is a dream, but it's the phrase dream job. Job is in there. I'm being paid to do this thing as much as I love it. Like this is what I do to live my life. It is not my life. And that's a very important distinction, especially for people entering the industry, especially people like me. I mean, sixth grade, I decided. And so (laughs) if if that's your whole dream, and then you come into this industry and then you're like, oh, I guess I have to work 90 hours a week in order to be a good editor. It's like, no, you do not. You don't. You don't have to. Yeah. Thank you for that. And then to go off of that, if you had the power, if like Some omniscient supreme person gave you all of the power in the world to change the publishing industry. Well, hopefully they'd give you more than that and you could like change the world. But (laughs) if you just had limited power to change the industry, what would you change? This is a big question. So like answer however you feel makes the most sense. Big changes, small changes, whatever makes the most sense to you.
1: I would say this feels like cheating, you know, when like you ask Jeannie for like more wishes, but I would inject more money into the industry because it's not like I don't recognize that sometimes your hands really are tied by the finances. Like I'm not saying that like they should be giving us everything we want as publishing professionals to make this industry the best that it could possibly be. But I would love if they could. I want them to have every resource necessary to really diversify their employees, their employee base. I want them to have every resource possible to sort of hire more people, as we were talking about. So having, you know, the administrative help that we've needed desperately for years. I want them to have the resources to do that. I want, what else do I want? I want, I don't know. I want more Black women in publishing. Is that selfish? That's probably selfish, but that's what I want. Um...
0: (laughs) You have the power. You're allowed to be selfish.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, if I had the power, everyone would be making a living wage and they would be paid for all of the work that they did. Now, after that long spiel about what an editorial job entails, you know that we should be making way more than we are currently making. Just like in the world, we should be making tech level salaries for the amount of work that we are doing if we are being paid fairly for that work. And I believe that very strongly. Um we would have better systems, better technology. I just want, I want more money to spread it around the world.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I, I wanna say also to the topic of editors should be paid more. I mean, everyone in publishing should be paid more, like just across the board, except, you know, the CEOs, maybe they could be paid yeah, less. They,
1: yeah, they don't need that. Mm,
0: you know, but especially editors, because editors it boggles my mind cuz i so i my my job before getting into publishing was working at a state government and so like i don't know if you know much about working in a state government at least the one i worked in they're like you go to work at 9 you leave at work at 5 and then you don't think about that job you do the job that you're paid to do and then you you do this job to have a life you this is not your life so i came into publishing with that mindset and i just never let that standard slip so like first couple of weeks in the job at macmillan I would like close my computer at noon or whatever time I had my lunch and I would just eat my lunch and read a book at my desk and people would come over and be like, hey, can I like ask you this? And I'd be like, sure, I'm done with lunch in like 20 minutes. Then I can come over and we can talk about yes,
1: it. Yes, I love the sound of that.
0: And I didn't do it because I was like, I have to keep the boundary. I just that was how I knew working in the office was because people wouldn't bother you during your lunch. They're like, oh, your lunch is sacred. Like that is your lunch. So I think um, this is kind of a tangent. But anyway, I was going to say the amount of unpaid labor that editorial especially does hours of reading and revising outside of work hours, because I've talked to many editors and they're like, the work hours are for sending the emails. And then every other hour of the day is for doing all the other work. And that's just, it's so unfair. It's so, it's no wonder that editorial is probably the most common department to burn out of. Like, it's just untenable to do all that work and have a life as well.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really hard. And like, I'm personally invested in figuring out a way to make it happen, but it's been a struggle. And like to to your point, to all of the unpaid labor, I didn't even sort of mention, you know, particularly for those who are interested in DEI and like all of the time and energy that you're giving to that as well, which might be a lot of after hours work. It's mentorship, it's event planning, program planning to make sure that people have the resources that they need to make this a more equitable space, which is something that we desperately, desperately need. And that's a lot of work, too.
0: Yeah. Publishing does too much work, especially editors, but across the board, it's it's Uh, too much.
1: (laughs) Right. But I do believe in giving back. And like, if you've been here for any period of time, being able to sort of reach down to the young hopefuls and say, like, here is a little bit of guidance. Here are some tools that you can use, um, I think is really important.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that is a perfect segue to my final question. What is the best advice that you've personally received in your career thus far?
1: Um, So one of my first bosses, her name is Zareen Joffrey. I adore her with my entire heart. I remember, I think she might have even said it in passing, but essentially she was like, life is too short and it is too short to work with people who are not good to you. I think as an editor, one of the most interesting things is that position of gatekeeper that I think I, I mentioned earlier is, you know, when I was first starting and people use the term gatekeeper, it felt really negative. It's like, oh, this is a person who is trying to keep people out. And so when I'm working, I like to think of myself as someone who is welcoming. I'm opening those gates. I'm opening those doors to people who historically haven't had any opportunities or haven't had the same opportunities in traditional publishing. But I I try to never forget the power that I do have as a gatekeeper to be like, I don't have to work with you. I do not have to work with you if you do not treat me well, if you don't treat my colleagues well. I think that's really important. When you... When you and the author sort of leaves the cave of development together and you're inviting the rest of the publishing team into the project, you want to make sure that you're working with someone who's going to treat them well, who's going to speak to them well. And I have a very low tolerance for people who don't. And uh, that for me, it doesn't mean that they're never like not working with me again, doesn't mean that they're never going to publish again, but I am capable of protecting my time and my energy by remembering that Zareen said life is too short and I don't have to. So that's one thing to carry with you (laughs) as you go. Yeah,
0: I think that's really excellent advice. Um, Okay, that is all the questions that I had prepared for this interview. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time. Truly such great insight, such great information for people. I think this is going to be a really useful tool for especially aspiring editors. Before we jump off, two last sub-questions. Number one, is there anywhere on the internet that you want people to follow you? And if so, plug it. And then number two, are there any projects upcoming that you're really excited about that you want to shout out?
1: Okay, So first, yes, you can follow me on Twitter. I use it very sporadically. But listen, if you enter my orbit, I will be liking all of your posts. Um, (laughs) So, you know, feel free to follow me over there at Nikisha Telfer on Twitter. And then projects that I'm really, really excited about. I feel like I've talked about this book so much already, but one of them is Becoming a Queen. I'm really, really excited about that comes out in, I guess technically for us, winter season. But that just means like from January to April of 2023. And then another book that comes out this year that I'm really, really excited about is called We Deserve Monuments by Jazz Hammond. And that is a YA novel about a, A biracial queer girl who moves to rural Georgia with her parents to sort of take care of her terminally ill grandma. When she gets down there, her grandma is real hostile real hostile. And she's like, I don't know what the vibe is here, but it's very confusing and a little bit ominous. And over the course of the story, she's slowly but surely peeling back layers of this family dynamic of the relationship that her mother and her grandmother has that is sort of spilling out across her relationships with the new girls that she meets, the new girl that she's slowly but surely falling in love with, and a wider town mystery that has been brewing for years. There's a little bit of murder. There's some kissing. It's very, very well written, and I'm really excited for it.
0: I love a little bit of murder and some kissing. What a great combo! (laughs) Okay, that's amazing. Thank you so much for that. Um, Yeah, if you're listening to this, definitely look those titles up, and also just find out what Makisha has edited because, like I said before, every like there's no misses in my opinion, at least. They're all such fascinating, wonderful books. So definitely take the time, find out what Makisha has edited, and read those books because they're so good and yeah thank you so much again for taking the time i so appreciate all of your advice all of your insight it's so wonderful and so helpful thank you
1: thank you for having me this is a really exciting experience i've listened to the first couple of episodes and like i don't know if i'm gonna at the sound of my own voice i don't know if i can tolerate it but i'm excited and i hope that this is useful to to people out there who want to get into this industry but don't really know how
0: yeah definitely i hope that and I, and this is just like kind of the thesis statement for the whole podcast. I hope that this podcast can help open the eyes before they're coming in. Just because like, it's going to be hard no matter what. But as long as you know that coming in, you can better prepare yourself for it. Exactly. And I think this, this episode specifically will do a lot of that work as well. So thank you again.
1: Please don't say that I scared you away. I hope that you come <laughs> join us here because it's hard work, but it's good work.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Okay. Thank you so much again.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Slush. Please visit slushpod.com where you'll find episode transcripts, free resources, and forms to submit questions and feedback. You can also follow Slush on Twitter at SlushPod, and if you are so inclined, please rate and review the podcast. Slush is hosted and produced by Eric Harden. Slush's logo was designed by Shelby Pack, and its theme music comes from the song Good Luck Charm by Olive Music. Any views expressed on the podcast are personal and do not reflect the opinions or interests of the host's or guest's employers. Thank you again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.